Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with author Jessica S. Henry, who's just released the book, Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So your background really did lead you into writing this book. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to write Smoke But No Fire? Absolutely. I was a public defender in New York City for 10 years, and then I joined the faculty at Montclair State University in the Department of Justice Studies. And I was able to bring that experience as a public defender into the classroom, and I developed a course on wrongful convictions. The more that I taught the class, the more I reflected on what I had seen as a public defender. And it all came to a head for me when I was doing some research in anticipation of the class, on the National Registry of Exonerations. And that's this wonderful database that collects all known exonerations. And you can sort of search through the database for different types of cases and different types of factors. And I was looking up a case that was a no-crime wrongful conviction, meaning someone had been convicted of a crime that never happened. And as I was doing the research, I saw that in the database, one-third of all known exonerations were no-crime wrongful convictions. And I thought, that couldn't possibly be right. And so I emailed the registry, and I said, is that correct? And they said, yes, it was. And at that moment, I knew I needed to learn more about how it's possible that one-third of all of the known wrongful convictions involve people who are convicted of crimes that simply didn't happen. And let's dig into that a little bit, because I know when I think of wrongful convictions, the first thing that pops into my mind is, oh, someone was murdered and the wrong person was identified as the murderer and went to prison or was on death row. And then it was discovered that they didn't really do it. But, you know, there was a person who had died and had been murdered. But when I picked up your book and I saw Convicting the Innocent of Crimes that never happened. I was like, what do you even mean? And so what do you mean when you say that no crime was committed or that it was a no crime wrongful conviction? Well, that category of case, no crime wrongful convictions, refers to a whole host of situations. And again, I'm not sure I ever thought about it specifically like this until I really dug in to this category of wrongful convictions. And it includes things like a fire that's mislabeled an arson when really it was an accident or a baby who dies and the police or or a medical expert decide that the baby died from shaken baby syndrome when in fact it had a kidney failure or where the police engage in flagrant misconduct and plant evidence of a crime that never happened or where someone falsely accuses someone else for their own personal motivations, whether that's revenge or a financial gain. So there's all of these different triggers, if you will, that can result in the false belief that a crime occurred where none did. But once something is identified as a crime, the police step in and do what they think they're supposed to do, which is solve the crime. If a crime was committed, then somebody committed the crime. And that's how we get into the situation where a wrong person is arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and sometimes incarcerated for decades, sometimes on death row, for events that were never crimes in the first place. And you do identify just numerous anecdotes. And it is like witnessing 
you know, a snowball falling down a hill. And as it rolls, it just acquires more and more mass. And all of a sudden, it's this giant thing that no one could possibly stop or seems that way. Could you read for us? I found this so interesting. It's one of the first anecdotes in your book. And it's about the first wrongful conviction where there was no crime committed that we have been able to identify in the United States. Sure, I'd be happy to. In 1812, Richard Colvin vanished without a trace from his home in Manchester, Vermont. Colvin's brothers-in-law, Jesse and Stephen Bourne, were suspected of playing a role in his disappearance. Years later, in 1819, a man claimed that the ghosts of Colvin appeared in his dream and directed him to dig up Colvin's murdered body from the Bourne cellar. Armed with the spectral mandate, the townspeople dug through the Bourne cellar floor. They found items belonging to Colvin, but no body. Soon after, a boy found bones under a tree near the Bourne farm. Triumphantly touting the bones as proof that Colvin had been murdered, the town arrested the Bourne brothers. While in custody, Jesse Bourne confessed that Stephen, with Jesse's help, had killed Colvin. What prompted this confession is unknown, but he recanted shortly after making his statement. Later, but before the trial began, the bones were re-examined and determined to be of an animal and not human origin. The town nonetheless pursued its case, relying heavily on Jesse's confession and the new testimony of a jailhouse informant who had shared Jesse's cell. The informant claimed Jesse had told him about the murder and further claimed that the Bourne's father was involved. Soon after, Stephen provided a written statement in which he confessed to the crime, but denied that his father and brother participated. Why Stephen confessed is also unknown, but whatever the reason, his confession shored up a case otherwise thin on evidence. With Stephen Bourne's confession and the informant's testimony, but no body or bones, the prosecution proceeded to trial. Both Bourne brothers were convicted of murder and sentenced to death on the gallows. Jesse's sentence was later commuted to life in prison, with Stephen's life literally hanging in the balance. A minister read a newspaper article about Richard Colvin and recognized him as a man who was alive and well in New Jersey. With Colvin identified, the Bourne brothers were released from prison. There had been no murder. What's so incredible about this being the first identified case of a no crime conviction is that it involves so many of the elements that you then tease out in different chapters and talk about, you know, well, this is how this can happen or this is how this can happen. I mean, right off the bat, we have faulty forensic science. We have a false confession. We have a jailhouse informant who straight up lies. And we have a prosecutor, you know, prosecutors who are determined to get justice for this man who is, again, alive and well in New Jersey. So it really is a great way to start out the book. I think that if we could go to the forensics a bit, at the ABA Journal, we were one of the first national publications to talk about faulty bite mark evidence, but it really is kind of incredible looking back, seeing the kinds of claims that have been made about what forensic science can and can't tell us. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and what you've seen when it comes to faulty forensic science resulting in these no crime convictions? Yeah, it runs the gamut. So you can first sort of say there's folks who are very well intentioned and believe what they're doing, but fundamentally get it wrong. So in the book, one of the cases that really just 
got me was Rodriguez Crawford, who is charged with murdering his infant child. And the medical examiner just assumed that the baby had been suffocated and didn't do the rest of the work that would have revealed the actual cause of death, which was an illness. And that's shocking to me. You know, they just sort of, they made assumptions that were based on race. Um, Rodriguez Crawford was black. They made assumptions that were based on class. Rodriguez Crawford was poor. And they didn't do what they were supposed to do, which was actually examine what was in front of them. And so we see how cognitive biases can play out in influencing forensic evidence and the misuse or the misapplication of forensic evidence. And it just kind of snowballs from there. So you mentioned bite mark evidence, and it is truly stunning how that type of evidence where an expert, a quote unquote expert comes in and says, yes, I can take the imprint of a wound that appears to be a bite mark, and I can match it to an individual person with some degree of certainty, how that's even allowed into court, because that is just junk science. And yet again, in my book, I sort of detail cases where people were convicted and sentenced to incredibly lengthy um, prison terms for false evidence about bite marks. And not just about bite marks, but also arson evidence. I think that probably at least... A healthy percentage of my listeners have heard about the case of Cameron Todd Willingham, for example, a man who was executed. Could you talk a little bit about that case? Sure. Yeah. Arson, you know, in my book, I talk quite a bit about how forensic experts misidentify using bad fire science, misidentify fire origins as arson as opposed to accidents. And in the case of Cameron Todd Willingham, he was a man down in Texas. A fire broke out in his home. And his three children died in the fire. And he was charged, arrested, prosecuted, convicted, sentenced to die, and executed for the murder of his children. And forensic scientists, when modern forensic scientists, when they went back and looked at the quality of the forensics that were used to determine the fire was arson, were shocked because it seemed very clear to them that it was an accidental fire. So we've talked about how people who are well-meaning, but just not informed enough about how much they should trust in a science or a confession have proceeded. But there are also definitely times when people wind up convicted or prosecuted for these no-crime convictions where there was a malintent, whether that's you know the person who accused them of a crime that was not committed or, say police officers who planted a gun or drugs on someone. Could you talk some about what you discovered in writing this book about those cases? There is a history of forensic misconduct, let's say, in the area of drug cases. Annie Dukin up in Boston led the charge. Um, Somewhat infamously, she made up, manufactured the results of lab tests. So she would claimed to have tested a substance and say it was positive for drugs when it wasn't. And people, thousands of people, were convicted based on her testimony. And she's not the only one. There's a whole cast of characters of people throughout the country, it's not unique to Massachusetts, who literally invented from whole cloth the results of their tests. But there's also an interesting phenomenon that I talk about in the book, in in Texas, for instance, the police would routinely stop mostly Black and mostly Latino people 
and they would claim to find drugs and they would conduct a test on those drugs right there on the spot. It's called a field test. And the field test would come back positive, which would give the police probable cause to arrest the person. And the person would be hauled on into court. And at their arraignment, the prosecution would say, here, I'm giving you a plea offer right now, take it or leave it, sort of a rocket docket approach. And people would often just plead guilty based on the positive outcome of the field test. But field tests are notoriously unreliable. They're often wrong. And so what happened in this one county in Texas, in Harris County, Texas, is they did something a little bit unusual. In most places, once somebody pleads guilty, the case is closed, the evidence is filed, and it's over. But in Harris County, they continued to send to the lab those field tests. And there was a big backlog. But once the lab looked at the tests, they they kept coming back with negative results, meaning the field tests had been wrong. And it wasn't, in fact, drugs that the police officers had found. And Harris County took the very unusual step of trying to locate the defendants who had pled guilty to crimes that they did not commit and exonerated or dismissed the cases where they were able to find the defendants. But there are still some defendants they couldn't find who are walking around with convictions on their records based on a plea of guilty to a drug crime that never happened. And that's one of the more insidious things, I think, as I was reading the book that I was really thinking about, because, you know, and you have a whole section on these sort of pleas to misdemeanors or, or more misdemeanor type crime. You know, we have whole organizations of people who dedicate their lives and time to helping exonerate people who are on death row, for example. But there just is not the same kind of attention paid to people who decided that they were just going to take a plea agreement to a misdemeanor type crime that never happened. Could you talk about both why and what factors would prompt someone to agree to a plea agreement when they hadn't done anything wrong? And two, what the effects on their life could be following that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, misdemeanors are often overlooked because people think of them as petty offenses. They don't think they are important or super serious. And of course, it's true. You can't serve more than a year in prison if you've been convicted of a misdemeanor offense. But they have very dire consequences, which I'll get into in just a second. But what winds up happening is I don't think many people appreciate just how onerous and traumatic the process of being arrested is. So you've been stopped by the police. It's often very threatening, very intimidating. If they decide to arrest you, you are handcuffed. You are put in their police car. You are taken to the precinct where you will often sit and sit and sit until finally your your name is called and then you're processed through the police booking system. And then you sit and sit and sit some more until you can be brought in front of a judge. And by that point, 24 hours can have passed, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, or more. And you may have employment responsibilities, childcare responsibilities, family issues that you have to address. And if someone offers you a plea that enables you to go home at that moment, people often take it, even if they did nothing wrong. On some level, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to fight a misdemeanor case, you're probably going to come back to court multiple times to do so, which means multiple days off of work, 
multiple days you have to arrange for child care or elder care, whatever your responsibilities are. And you have to fight your way through the court security to get into the building, assuming that is that you were able to get out in the first place and that bail was not set on your case. You can have misdemeanor bail set. And for some people, it's just too much to make. And so people make the decision to plead guilty. But what they don't understand is that misdemeanors are convictions and they appear on your record. And depending on the nature of the conviction, if it's a drug case, for instance, it can have significant consequences on your housing, on your future employment prospect, and it also creates a criminal justice fingerprint. And we know that people who are in the criminal justice system are more likely to be targeted by the criminal justice system. And so it creates a cycle that can prove incredibly onerous and stigmatizing for the individual who thought they were doing the right thing and maybe were doing the right thing in that particular moment by taking a plea to something they didn't do. Now, we've talked about police and prosecutors who have, you know, motives that may lead to these no crime convictions. But you also identify other parts of the system that also bear some responsibility for this. And one was defense attorneys. And having been a public defender, you absolutely know the kind of case that the people are struggling with. But what did you see as the way that defense attorneys can be letting their clients down or contributing to this, you know, no crime conviction rate? Yeah. So, I mean, I was really fortunate because I worked in an office known as it's the Bronx Defenders, and they take a really holistic approach to criminal defense. And they have a team where there's a social worker and you've got a supervisor and they really sort of all hands on deck at all times. But even at the Bronx Defenders, caseloads are very high. Even the best intentioned, the most committed, the most zealous criminal defense attorney can only do what they can squeeze into the course of one day. And they have to prioritize. It's often triage. And that's really difficult when you're talking about the liberty interests of people who are entirely dependent on you, their assigned lawyer. And so there's this well-documented issue with high caseloads, but that's only part of it. So in some jurisdictions, lawyers are assigned to specific courtrooms and specific judges, and they learn very quickly that they've got to go along to get along because if they fight too hard for one client, it could redound to the detriment of another. Now, of course, that is not the vision of what good quality defense lawyering is. In fact, that should never be the case. But there's a practical reality on the ground about what happens in day-to-day -day courtrooms. So there's that. And then there's the other real issue is that some defense lawyers aren't particularly well-trained and aren't particularly well-committed to the idea of being a criminal defense lawyer and providing zealous, high-quality representation. And they kind of show up and punch their card and sleep through trials. And that's a huge problem. You also identified things that judges are doing that contribute to this. And what did you see as being the responsibility of the judiciary in this? You know, judges are often overlooked. And I'm never sure why, because they do play such an important role in the way that courts operate. So whether we're talking about plea bargains, judges often will accept a plea on its face without making sure there's an adequate factual basis. Or at trial, they'll allow in 
forensic testimony that never would pass the legal standards that should be required when you're admitting that type of evidence into court. They will allow jailhouse informants to testify to information that everyone in the courtroom pretty much knows is false or should know is false. And they don't step in and do the gatekeeping function that they've been assigned. And that's a huge problem. Judges also are responsible for setting bail. And in jurisdictions that have not yet embraced the idea of pretrial detention as something that should really be reserved for very specific, narrow cases, that's a huge issue. Judges shouldn't routinely be setting bail at rates that poor defendants can never hope to make, particularly in nonviolent cases. So, Jessica, you've identified that this is something that is happening quite frequently in our courts. But why should people be really concerned and turning focus to this problem? You know, we give the state the right to prosecute people for crimes that occurred. And we do it in the name of the state. If you've ever watched Law and Order, you see it's the people of the state of New York versus whoever. And that's because they're supposed to be representing the people, the society. We all have an interest in not being harmed by crime. But the thing about no crime wrongful convictions is that nothing happened. The state has absolutely no interest in pursuing people for crimes that didn't occur. And yet they do far too frequently, and people's lives are destroyed in the process. One way that I think that some of these cases could just have been prevented or, or stopped altogether is if all of this was able to come out during the trial process rather than after the fact. And you talk a lot about the way you think prosecutors should be handling evidence disclosures. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the Supreme Court in a case called Brady versus Maryland said that the prosecution has an obligation to turn over what is called exculpatory evidence, evidence that's helpful to the defense. And yet what the prosecution often does is hide that evidence. And so the defense is left working blind and there's an informational imbalance that always redounds to the detriment of the defendant. And if we had open discovery policies, and if prosecutors didn't abuse those open discovery policies by keeping evidence out of their files, for instance, or by trying to drown defense lawyers in too many pieces of paper, we actually might create a system that's more open and fair. Because this whole idea of trial by gotcha doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If prosecutors' job is to do justice, then that's what they should be seeking. And if they have evidence that somehow proves the defendant is not guilty, then they need to turn that over. So what is our way forward that you see? You have a really good section. I think it's the whole conclusion of the book, actually, yeah. in which you identify concrete actions that each step of this justice process can take in order to fight back against this no-crime conviction rate or try and make sure that no one is going to prison or losing their liberty for something that didn't even happen. You know, I, I also am haunted by the story of that 19-year-old father whose baby died and he was put through this total meat grinder. How can we make sure that that sort of case does not happen again? One of the interesting things about talking about no crime wrongful convictions is that it really shines a light on just how dysfunctional 
the entire criminal justice system is. And you can't just talk about reforming the police or reforming prosecutors. You kind of have to talk about the system as a whole. And so in the last section of my book, I do try to think about all the different actors and how they each contribute to this ultimate outcome of a no crime wrongful conviction. So in the context of forensic science, for instance, you know, I really do call for judges at minimum to do their jobs and make sure that the evidence they're allowing into their court is valid and reliable. And also in the context of forensic science, there's so many reform measures that have been floating in the ethos for so long that just need to be adopted. For instance, forensic labs need to be independent from prosecutor and police offices because we know that when forensic scientists are spoken to about a case before they do their analysis, cognitive biases kick in and they often see things that they shouldn't. So we need completely independent forensic labs and forensic science. We need to have proper certification for the scientists who are doing their work. There's actually no national certification standard. So right within forensic science, we could have a whole conversation about just the ways that we could reform that that would redound to the benefit of all the actors in the criminal justice system because clearly we don't want to see people convicted based on unreliable and faulty evidence. And you make the point that, you know, judges generally are not scientists and it's not super reasonable to expect them to, on their own, know what is and is not reliable forensic science. Right. So what would happen if we routinely, as a matter of course, said to judges, when you've got forensic science that you've, a, a type of forensic science that you do not know enough about, bring in an expert to help you consult. Is that such a radical idea? <laughs> um, and similarly, what would happen if we routinely allowed defense attorneys to hire their own forensic experts to challenge the evidence put forward by the prosecutor? I talk in the in the book about a case in Chicago where that I call a near miss no crime wrongful conviction. It was a man who was accused of strangling a woman, his neighbor, and. He's the one who called the police, you know, and he said, she just died. She was just sort of lying over there and she died. And the forensic scientist, the who, the medical examiner who looked at her body said, oh, no, this was a murder. She was strangled. And because the judge allowed the defense lawyers to hire a certified, a board certified forensic scientist to examine the evidence, he was freed. He was found not guilty because there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever of a strangulation. They believed that it was a cardiac event yeah, or a heart attack, absolutely. right? And they didn't just believe it. They found evidence that she had died of a heart attack. But the first, the, the city's forensic expert found otherwise based on nothing. Well, Jessica, I have to imagine since we are getting towards the school year, You've been thinking a lot about how you are going to interact with your students during the pandemic, putting together lesson plans. Are there going to be changes that you make to your curriculum because of what you've discovered in writing the book? Well, I've, I'm fortunate in that I've been teaching this class about wrongful convictions for a long time. Um, so when I teach the wrongful convictions course, this material is already there. But I do always try to bring into all of my classes that are related to criminal law and procedure related to the death penalty, related to law and justice in general, the idea that we need to think critically about things that we accept as given. So 
We, for instance, like to think of prosecutors as being these folks who are assigned to do justice. And yet, time and again, we see prosecutors prioritizing wins, which they consider which they measure by the number of convictions, as opposed to prioritizing justice. We see them playing fast and loose with evidentiary rules and not turning over the material they're required to under the Constitution. We see prosecutors requesting high bails. We see prosecutors threatening unbelievably long sentences if people don't agree to take pleas quickly without having anybody examine the quality of the evidence that they claim that they have. We see prosecutors relying on informants who have incentives to lie, or we see prosecutors accepting the police version of events without critically examining the evidence that's theoretically supposed to be supporting them. And so that's just one small area that this book helps me expand upon in class. We need to think critically about the actors that we so often take on their face as being, you know, folks who do their jobs properly and well. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your book, Smoke But No Fire. If people were interested in either purchasing the book or reaching you in order to talk further about these issues, where could they go to do that? So if you are interested in buying the book, it's available anywhere you like to buy books, including your local independent bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and even the University of California Press. Uh, and if you want to reach me, I have a website, www.jessicahenryjustice.com, and you can reach me right through there. Well, thank you for joining us, and thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.